This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to episode number 17 of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm back, motherfuckers, Andrew Robinson. (laughs) Yes, we missed you last week, Andrew. But uh, Ryan and I managed to somehow pull together an episode without you. So you should be proud of us. You cheating, cheating whores. Oh, this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO TV series, The Newsroom. This week, we are going to be discussing the fourth episode of season two of The Newsroom. The episode is titled Unintended Consequences. It was written by Aaron Sorkin, and it was directed by Carl Franklin. This is not a spoiler-free podcast, so if you are not caught up with The Newsroom and don't want us to ruin it for you, stop listening now. We will be talking about the entire episode, including the ending, all the different plot lines, everything that happens. So if you do not want us to spoil it for you, don't listen. Before we really dive into things, though, I am privileged to introduce a very special guest. She is a writer for Film School Rejects and Fanhattan. You may remember her as our first female guest when we covered season one of The Newsroom. It's only appropriate that she be our first female guest while we cover season two. Allison Loring, welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you on. You write for a site or an app, I guess I, I, I should say, called Fanhattan. And it sounds awesome. Can you uh, explain a little bit to our listeners about what Fanhattan is and what you're all about? Yes, I would love to. Um, Fanhattan is it's an app currently. And if you go to fan.tv, you can check it out. Um, it basically is a great spot to go to if you're ever wondering where you can find TV shows and movies. Um, instead of having to look all over the place, this kind of consolidates all the resources into one place for you. So it tells you if something's on Netflix, Hulu, streaming on iTunes, um, and it also gives you little updates and alerts if you add them to watch lists. So it's just a really great resource to kind of know where anything you want to watch is available at any given time. And I believe later this year they're going to be rolling out um, an actual physical device that will be something that you can hook up to your TV. So instead of having your streaming Netflix account and your video game console and all this stuff kind of confusing your uh, TV system, this will kind of consolidate everything into one slick little device and allow you to stream everything through one device instead of multiple devices. So I write for the editorial arm of that, which you can check out at voice.fan.tv. That sounds really cool. So so this means... If in the future HBO starts streaming their shows on other platforms, I'll be able to search for the newsroom and discover where I can watch it. Exactly. That's the plan. Okay. That sounds great. All right. Well, Andrew, before we really dive into our discussion of unintended consequences, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened on this episode? There are a bunch of stuff which ended up happening. We continue to find out more about Maggie as she heads off to Africa, and we actually end up going to Africa with her. There's the return of the flashback, flash-forward framing device as this story is told completely via the deposition 
as we see Maggie being interviewed by Marcy Gay Harden. There's the Occupy Wall Street story coming back as Neil's supposed girlfriend, or who we hoped would have been girlfriend, it doesn't look like it's going to be that way, ended up getting her ass handed to her on the program with Will McAvoy doing the only thing Will McAvoy knows how to do best, which is mock people horrendously for not knowing what the hell they're talking about. We get to see Jim on the road in the Romney campaign, and we get to see how his ideals kind of bash against what people want to do versus what people should do versus reality. And then we see it even pay off wonderfully as Maggie version 2.0 works out kind of the way I planned Everything else kind of just sticks in the middle that we can talk about. There's the wonderful talking point of somebody's ranch. um, And I guess we can leave it there for now. I don't know how deep we want to go there. Um, I think I've covered everything. I don't quite know. There is a funny moment with Charlie Skinner scaring Mac. But that's just just (laughs) me. Yeah, um, the the big thing that I think this episode covers that that we haven't really seen a lot of until now we've only heard about it is Maggie's trip to Africa and I guess we're, we're gonna make that our main topic this episode so we'll talk about that in a little bit but uh, just to get started Allison if I recall correctly when we last had you on we we were all fairly positive on the newsroom but we also had a few slight misgivings for example about the show's depiction of women I'm curious, what do you think of season two so far? Do you think that it's better than season one, pretty much the same as season one? I think it has moments where it's better than season one. Um, It seems to be a little bit more aware of itself. It says little funny jokes like, oh, the perfect thing just fell right into our laps, dot, dot, dot. They seem to have, you know, some self-awareness that the show is a little too much of a fantasy sometimes since it is in the near or past. But I actually read a really great review about the new season um, in The Hollywood Reporter that said, watching the newsroom isn't hate watching, it's just disappointment watching. And I think that really summed up my feelings on it. You want it to be better, and it has moments of being better, so you think it's going in the right direction, and then it disappoints you once again. So (laughs) I'm still not 100% sold on the show, but I can't stop watching it. So... (laughs) Well, why can't you stop watching it if it's so disappointing? Because it has those moments where it's so great. Or it has like moments where it's actually not entertaining. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then it goes away immediately. Look, look, Andrew. Andrew and Allison. In the spectrum of television shows, you got you to gotta believe that while we have our misgivings of the newsroom here and there, people are still watching True Blood and Dexter. So we're, we're, we're nowhere near the levels of hate watching that people think they're talking about when they talk about the newsroom. I am still watching both of those shows, and I'm recording a weekly podcast on the final season of Dexter, so I know what you mean. And I, but, but I will defend both of those shows to a point. That's neither here nor there. Allison, what did you think of this episode, Unintended Consequences? I had a lot of problems with this episode. Okay. I think my problem with the newsroom, and I talked about this last time I was on the show, and it remains to be true, um, is I can't reconcile how the women are depicted. Like I said, they have moments where you're like, oh, great. And then it's immediately followed by five things that I just can't get behind. Uh, I think my notes during the episode were all over the map. A lot of 
quotes that the girls were using. And I don't think screaming, I teach college or I went to Vassar are, you know, redeeming reasons why you should be heard. I think women can be much more intelligent than that. Um, so I had a couple of issues with all of that. But overall, I mean, I, I was excited episode because I wanted to know more about what happened to Maggie. Obviously, that was a big reveal um, at the beginning of the season when you see what a dramatic physical transformation she went through and everyone wanted to know what caused that. But I have to say I was pretty disappointed finding out the reason behind why Maggie so broken despite, you know, she doesn't want to admit that she is, but clearly this experience has really affected her. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed in that as well, and, and we'll discuss that in more detail later. Andrew, what did you think of this episode? First of all, before we get into what I think about this episode, this is something that I haven't mentioned since our preview talk before the season actually started. This is episode number four of what we expect to be nine, and we have not seen Patton Oswalt yet. Newsroom, you and I have a discussion to be made to have <laughs> very soon, because you're you're running thin on this, this promise. <laughs> But anyways, back to actually answering your question, what I thought about this episode. I have to say that, oddly enough, this is like one of my favorite episodes that I've seen in so long of this show. And I think it mainly ties into the Maggie storyline. Because not so much the depiction of women, which I can see people having complaints with. But at the same time, if you're still watching this show, I don't think this show has changed in any way that it's depicted <laughs> yeah. women from episode one to today. So, I mean... If if you're gonna just be bashing against that wall, I think that's that's more your fault for coming to the show still at this <laughs> point than anything else. Putting that aside, I feel that this was probably the first time in the entire show, the entire series run, that they actually constructed a narrative that paid off and was thrilling to watch for the first time because when you come to that last 15 minutes and I know we want to talk about it later in the show you kind of get in the moment of that conversation of Maggie kind of explaining everything to you and what you're seeing and I applaud Sorkin because it's something that we haven't seen in this show yet it's partially because of the whole oh he's doing news we know kind of complaints but I actually feel like this is the kind of storytelling they could always be doing. Because while this might not be a specific news story that would have hit the headlines, it is news. It is the production of news, which is what the show should really be about. And it's the first time where we're actually seeing it in the moment, and I like it for that. Okay, well, we're definitely going to have a strong discussion about the last 15 minutes of this episode. I'm going to be somewhere in, in the middle. Andrew, it sounds like you really liked this episode, and Allison, it sounds like you really didn't care for it. I liked most of it, but there were some flaws, particularly in Maggie's storyline, that just kind of bugged me a little bit. So overall, I would say it's a pretty good episode of the show, but not perfect, but I think I'm okay overall if the newsroom wants to keep staying at that level of pretty good but not great. And uh, who knows, it's possible, Allison, that by the end of our conversation you'll have me rethinking <laughs> my, my stance on this episode. But I, I, I need to say, I actually I just finished watching the episode not too long ago, so I haven't had a whole lot of time to process it, but my initial immediate reaction is fairly positive. Um, but let's talk about some of the specifics. The first thing I want to talk about is Jim on the campaign trail, because I am really disappointed <laughs> with how they handled this 
I do not want Jim to be off the campaign trail. I want him to stay on the campaign trail. I liked how the last episode ended with them getting kicked off the bus. I thought, oh, this could be a cool opportunity for Jim to become the new Will and to kind of do his own little Newsnight 2.0 revolution regarding campaign coverage. But it looks like that's not going to happen. And while there's a part of me that realizes, well, yeah, because that's not how political journalism works, and that's not what we saw in real life, so I shouldn't really expect that. I was hoping that they would do a little bit more with it than they did, and I'm disappointed that Jim is now back in the newsroom already. How do you guys feel about that? I agree with that, definitely. I mean, I think what you just said kind of goes back to what I was saying where, and I agree with uh, Andrew Robinson about what he was saying, how this show, when it, I like the new um, narrative construct this season where it's not just retelling news stories from two years ago. Something has happened and what we're seeing is a lot of flashbacks leading up to this deposition that they're getting ready to go through. So I do like that construct because it has allowed us some storylines that are much more interesting. But again, they get really close to doing something interesting and compelling like with Maggie or with Jim kind of deciding to fly the coop on the campaign bus and start his own thing and then they never follow through with it so I think that there's good ideas there I just wish they would go further with you know yes it wouldn't have been very realistic if Jim you know really did kind of you know spearhead his own thing because that's not how political journalism works but I think you know the newsroom is kind of set up in a bit of a fantasy scenario so they have a little bit of leeway that they could have gotten away with letting him kind of run with that idea a little bit longer than they did you can kind of imagine how great it would be if they decided to take this a completely different route and use this opportunity of Jim and this this small crew of being on the outside looking in, doing a complete gonzo-like coverage of the Romney campaign. Using what we know and just tilting the purview a little bit so that we can kind of get the unfiltered version of what's going on, um, which is what we are privy to as just viewers of the show as opposed to whoever is reading the actual news output by Jim and the crew. But otherwise, I mean, I can't say that I'm I'm surprised in any way because I, 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 I told Andrew this, I called it from like two weeks ago. Um, this is exactly where it was going. Jim was going to be that guy who's looking for... Maggie version 2.0, and that's <laughs> that's who she is to us at least. I mean, I'm not saying she's as um, as daffy as as Maggie has been put out to be throughout the the shows, the episodes we've seen so far, but she definitely is that to him, and I I like her, and I think it just might be that it's the show kind of pushing that on to me than anything else. I like her. It, it, you even see that moment in this episode where she kind of gets her ass chewed out by her boss, where it's it's this moment where you're like, so you went off, she made this point a, a week back about how she went off to be her own journalist, basically. That's why she left the, the shitty paper that she interned in and stuff. And she doesn't look like she's in much of a better situation professionally, which is kind of weird. Yeah, that threw me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm with you regarding, uh, I think her, the, the character's name is Hallie, and how she's basically Maggie 2.0. I like the fact that now she's the new potential love interest, but again, that makes me wonder, why did Aaron Sorkin choose to write it in such a way that Jim is now off the campaign trail, where it will be more difficult to develop that 
relationship. I'm really, really worried that now that Jim is back in the newsroom, the sparks are going to start flying again between him and Maggie, and we're just going to kind of end up getting the same thing that we got last season and over and over, and I really do not want that to happen. Andrew, Andrew, Maggie doesn't have any more trouble in her. Did you see her hair? <laughs> it's gone. Okay? No more trouble. I'm worried that now that Maggie has basically hit rock bottom, Jim is going to be presented as like this white knight that's going to come along and, and rescue her. And I just, I do not really want to see that, honestly. Is it too much I to think- hope that the reason why we heard that terrible conversation with her boss is that Jim is going to save her by offering her a job at Newsroom and bring her back with him to cause, you know, maybe a little bit more of a dramatic tension between the three of them? I think I would be more okay with that. I just, I don't want Hallie to be kicked off the show. I can't imagine why they would introduce her if they're just going to have Jim go back to the newsroom and forget about her. So I imagine they will do something like that where he does offer her a job and they start working together. And you're right, that would, again, kind of rehash the same love triangle we saw in season one. That would still be a conflict, but who knows? Maybe they could do something interesting with it this time around. I I, I don't know. I just, whatever they can do to get away from Jim and Maggie, that's kind of what I want to happen. I agree. (laughs) I agree with that. The last thing I want to say about the uh, campaign trail stuff, I like how one of the opening lines is Jim at the uh, hotel basically acknowledging that he doesn't know the name of the third guy because last week when we were talking about the episode, I couldn't remember his name either, and I doubt anybody could really remember his name. So I thought that was a nice little in-joke, perhaps. Is there anything else either of you have to say about the campaign trail stuff? I would say to the detriment of that whole storyline, you talk about that first scene with them where they're making that joke. I felt like they had this whole conversation at the counter going, why are we off the bus? And it felt like it was just Sorkin reminding us completely of what happened in the last episode, which I tend to really hate television doing. Like, we already have to sit through the first two minutes of them telling us what we need to remember that's relevant, which I really hate because sometimes that gives away which direction the show is going to go into and we kind of, it, it's its its own preemptive spoiler for people who kind of look into things too often. When you have a character who's just there repeating something that if you're watching this on a DVD you saw like 30 minutes ago, if you're watching it in real time, you saw it last week, and you would have seen it in the preview, in the before the episode started clips. I mean, it's it's aggravating to me, but that's just me being pissy at little things. Yeah, th- th- that is actually a good point. We don't often think about how sometimes the show can end up spoiling itself or seeming redundant with the way it, it edits some of that previously on the newsroom stuff. That That is a good point. It dumbs down the character. I mean, Jim isn't you know, he's a senior producer. He's not stupid. You know, he doesn't need to tell the two people he's been with everything that's already happened to them for the benefit of, you know, a concierge at a hotel. I mean, we know what's going on. They know what's going on. It, it just it seems unnecessary and it drags the episode out. And you're like, I want to get to the next plot point. I don't want to hear about what already happened. I'm aware. 
I mean, it's just like two weeks ago when we saw Will go to the police station and he just started shouting random things that we've already seen in the episode, which aggravates us um, at the police office talking about one guy getting bombed, the other guy's locked up in a corner and I have my guy in the... I'm just dealing with the like we already know all of this information. It aggravates us as much as it aggravates you. Now please stop repeating yourself and get to the <laughs> point. Well, to play devil's advocate in this situation just a little bit, I think one of the interesting things about this campaign trail subplot is that it has kind of shown that Jim is is kind of like Will in that he's pretty arrogant. And even though this is his first time covering a campaign, he does kind of act like he knows the way it's supposed to be done and he's better than everybody else. And Hallie has to keep reminding him, no, I've done this longer than you. You don't need to keep telling us this. There's a part of me that would want to say that the decision to have him repeat everything would be in character to a certain extent, just because unintentionally or not, he views the people around him perhaps as a little bit dumb. I agree with you in the sense that it makes sense that he would repeat something like asking for 30 minutes with the with <laughs> Romney with like every 2 seconds which makes sense that's that's in, built into his character where he's trying to get that story he's trying to get that opportunity to make something more than just the talking notes that he gets every 5 minutes but it's not for him to repeat it to the people around him it's for him to repeat it to the establishment. And therefore, that makes the hotel scene and every other thing like that that happens in the show completely redundant and annoying. But once again, this is me being pissy at little things. All right. Well, uh, moving on, let's talk about this uh, Occupy Wall Street stuff, because that has been brewing ever since the uh, first episode this season. Now, we finally get an on-air interview about Occupy Wall Street, and it goes horribly wrong to a certain extent. It went perfectly right. <laughs> I was about to say, it, go, it goes the way we would expect it to go when dealing with Will McAvoy. Here in the studio today is one of the leaders of Occupy Wall Street, Shelley Wexler. Shelley, the with us. It's good to be here, but I am not one of the leaders of OWS. We don't have leaders. Is that a good idea? Not having leaders? Yeah. Yes, because this way everyone's sure to have a voice. Sounds like a lot of people talking at once, but tell us in a few words what OWS is protesting. We are protesting a variety of issues. The co-opting of the government by the rich, the lack of any prosecution for the crimes that led to the collapse of 2008, Citizens United, social inequality. So not any particular thing? Not one particular thing. You're protesting against lots of things. The list of things we're protesting against is as varied as protesters themselves. I've seen protesters holding signs that say we are the 99%. Yes. I am the 1%. Some people would say I'm overpaid, but I'm not. I'm paid exactly what the market will bear, which means I'm paid what I'm worth. So, which system would you replace capitalism with? Allison, how did you feel about how they're handling this Occupy Wall Street stuff? I mean, they're obviously looking at it through a very specific lens. Um, I, you know, obviously identify with the people in support of Occupy Wall Street because, you know, like Will McAvoy says, I'm not the one person, you know, he is, you know, Emily Mortimer's character is, she has 12, you know, $100 shoes. And I think it's kind of interesting to see how the people higher up in the newsroom wouldn't recognize this as 
a viable news story because it would not affect them. And some of the younger characters are obviously much more interested in what's kind of going on and what may be brewing. So I do like that dichotomy where, of course, Will's dismissive. And unfortunately, the girl, I forget her name, who's representing OWS, she isn't very well prepared for that interview because, you know, Will makes good points, but she could have had good points to come back at him with. Um, you know, yes, there are leaders this movement. She could have mentioned other movements that did not have specific leaders that were successful to kind of counteract him. So I didn't totally get behind her rage later of saying, you know, totally set me up for failure. You could have been better prepared. You know that kind of perspective Will is going to be coming from. So I felt it was just inevitable. You know, she was kind of walking into the fire and, you know, she was just like, no, I, you know, we are a leaderless movement. It's going to be great. And she was never able to answer any questions about it. Know, leading up to this interview anyway so I was I was worried about her going toe-to-toe with Will didn't fare well I kind of like to a certain extent how they handle the that they've been handling the Occupy Wall Street stuff just because Allison like you I tend to be more pro Occupy Wall Street but I like the fact that Will is able to so clearly articulate the problems that many people had with that that movement and how honestly a lot of the criticisms really didn't have a lot to do with goals or or what they were trying to draw attention to a lot of it just had to do with how the movement was structured and i think that that is a really really interesting debate you know just kind of that idea of well what type of movement allows the most voices to be heard versus what type of movement gets things done, as Will puts it. So I'm going to, for a moment, I'm going to show how ignorant I can be because <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about this um, and and basically how, how I understand this. Because if I remember the news coverage of this, it felt to me that it was never coverage of the actual protest. It was coverage of how the people protesting were affected. That's what really spurned on the coverage of this story and what spurned on the movement. But weirdly enough, I feel almost like the whole of this is intentionally ridiculous in how Will McAvoy is able to completely dismember this woman on television because it might just be the viewpoint of um, Sorkin himself to say that, yes, this was a completely leaderless movement. And other than the fact that a lot of your protesters were mal- were mistreated horribly, what did you actually accomplish? Because I'm trying to remember what the actual outcome of this, 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 this protest was. And I'm going to be honest with you right now. I can't quite remember. I remember when it was going on, seeing everyone understanding what was happening. And it got to a point where the quote-unquote 1% just went, we'll wait <laughs> and, and see how it works out because what you going to do? I mean, can you guys answer that for me? Because it, it's, it's literally escaped my mind at this point. Well, you're 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 getting at one of the main criticisms that Will has against it, it, it which is the fact that you know there were no clear leaders, there wasn't a, a, a quote unquote official set of goals or ideas that they were trying to promote. To a certain extent, yes, that did limit the the impact it could have in a practical sense. But I would argue, just personally, 
that it definitely had a cultural impact. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, you see the phrase, we are the 99%, or, or phrases like that referring to percentages all the time. And it's largely due to Occupy Wall Street. I mean, when when the uh, the Romney video was released about the 47% and 53%, that also happened around this same time. So it really did, in, in some ways, make people more aware of issues of class in the United States. You know, in this episode, Shelley seems to be arguing that to a certain degree, that's their goal, just to get people to pay attention and to have a cultural impact, not necessarily a legislative one. Right. And I, I feel know. like that's kind of what she talked about in the interview when Will was grilling her and saying, you don't have any specific demands, you don't have any specific goals, you don't have a plan about what you want to have happen. And she did kind of say, I know, but the point of this is to point a finger at and bring light to what's going on. And obviously, in Will's mind, that doesn't mean anything. He's all about action and, you know, kind of coming from that sense of being a lawyer of, you know, you have a plan and, you know, this is the goal you're trying to reach. And she's kind of coming more from, we're just trying to raise awareness in a lot of ways. And I think that's where Occupy Wall Street kind of got confusing for a lot of people because it was a really big movement. And it was something we all remember. But in the end, you know, I think it was, I mean, I guess it achieved its goal in bringing awareness and, you know, having people now refer to, you know, different sections of the culture as, you know, we're the 99%, we're the 1%. So it certainly succeeded in doing that. And, you know, I think she was saying that was our point. And Will was saying, well, that's kind of silly. You should have a more concrete goal to reach if you want change to happen. Andrew, does that kind of answer your question a little bit? I guess it does. But it also kind of lets me know that while when they eventually get to a lot of the bigger um, uh, treatment of the protesters' coverage, it's not going to stop a lot of the criticism and the the tearing apart that Will McAvoy will give this campaign, this, this protest, sorry. And I, I have to say, even though I tend to be more pro-Occupy, it was just so great to see Will back in his Aaron Sorkin preachy mode. Just because even though I disagree to a certain extent with what he says, Aaron Sorkin always just writes uh, those exchanges so well that it's kind of impossible not to sympathize a little bit with, with Will. I don't sympathize with either of them. I mean, I find Will to be logically correct and the perfect sound of reason. I find the the woman to be just a crazy, sorry for using this word for people who are looking at this from a 2020 retrospective vision, a crazy hippie who thinks she can stand up in the street and make change by just standing there. But at the same time, this is something which she definitely knows that she wants something. She doesn't know what she wants, but she wants something, just like everyone who is a lateral leader, as she says so often. Um, it's... It's weird because I agree with Sorkin on this one at this point in time in that it's just rabble at this point in time. There's no... All it is is noise. All it is is people who are saying, I want, I want, and they're not saying what they want. It's it's kind of crazy. But I don't want to go deep into this because I feel like I'll just expose a certain side of me which will turn into 
Andrew's a crazy person kind of <laughs> territory. No, but Andrew, I mean, I do agree with you. I certainly was pro Occupy Wall Street while it was going on. But at the same time, I think that the way the newsroom is presenting it, you know, they're doing it from a specific point of view. I mean, Neil was even going to Shelly from the beginning and asking her the same questions Will was, and she didn't have any good answers for him. So I was actually kind of shocked that Neil brought her in to do an interview like that, knowing that she was probably going to get roasted. So in that sense, I think he kind of deserved to get punched in the stomach. But at the same time, I mean, you know, it's hot button topic in a lot of ways, but I don't think she's the best uh, speaker on half of the movie. Look, look, Neil liked a girl. The girl wanted to go and say something. He <laughs> did something for her and put her in the spot that he told her earlier, honey, it's not going to work out. It's not a good idea. <laughs> I believe he told her that the first time. He asked her all of those questions the first time they met. He's like, look, I dig what you're doing, but I have a couple questions here. You got to have better answers than, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, Andrew, I'm I'm curious, as someone who doesn't live in the United States, did the Occupy movement kind of register at all overseas? Or, I mean, w- were you even aware this was going on? What, I, I'm not sure how the media presented it overseas. Um, so to cue you in, I do watch CNN. <laughs> I do watch BBC. Okay. I'm not under a rock. Yeah, I figured that. Jamaica actually gets internet. In case you didn't know that. To answer your question, I did see the Occupy Wall Street story and it did register with me because to tell you the truth, whenever I get perspectives on American culture, especially when it comes to two sides of a story just kind of batting heads at each other, it tended for most part, and it still is very much topical within the US, become a racial story. The thing about it is that cultures within the Caribbean, while we do have our racial tensions here and there, for the most part, that doesn't really exist. We are very racially non-discriminating. Where we do kind of touch on discriminations and all sorts of topics of tension comes in class warfare. The higher class and the middle class and the lower class are always kind of against each other all the while. So the Occupy Wall Street as a concept was always something that I was interested in, something that that made sense to me instantly in trying to get the upper class to take note of the lower classes below them. But at the same time, I did have those criticisms even then where I even remember seeing this thing at the time it was it was a horrible thing for someone to say, but I, I think it was one of these like shitty memes that people throw all around Facebook where they just have the Occupy Wall Street people going crazy and then right below it a picture of, you know, some rich guy and he's just standing up there and he goes, you know what, we'll wait because you guys will run out soon enough and you're going to have to go back to work. And I'm like... That's right. <laughs> They're going to have to, right? It can't go on forever. It's just this this weird thing where, like Sorkin is trying to say in the show, where I don't see what endgame they're actually looking for. Are they looking for us to talk about it? Maybe it's the fact that it's a topic that I've talked about so many times in my lifetime, being from the Caribbean as opposed to the US, where class warfare was a topic versus racial. It just felt like something where like, you guys don't talk about that already? What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> You're saying you don't need an Occupy movement. It's there already. How do you guys not realize that? (laughs) All right. Well, I I think you guys brought up a good point when you you pointed out that Neil 
already made some of those same critiques to Shelley in, I want to say, episode one or two. And remember, the only time that Neil actually got a story out of Occupy Wall Street before today was in episode two, when he was dealing with the maltreatment of the protesters. Not about the actual protest. Good point. That is a good point. All right, well, moving on, the uh, backbone of this season really seems to be all this stuff involving Operation Genoa and this story that everyone in the newsroom is investigating. All we really know is that something goes wrong and they, and, and they, they get something wrong. And I've gradually been won over by this storyline over the past few episodes. And I thought it was interesting how in this episode, basically the trail has gone cold. So they spend the entire episode just trying to get in touch with a random person in the park that could be a lead. On the one hand, I was like, well, yeah, that's exactly what journalists would do. And on the other hand, I was kind of thinking, well, maybe this is where the story kind of starts to go south a little bit. And maybe this is where they start to make some mistakes. Because up until now, it seems like they've been doing everything right. Allison, what did you think about how they're handling this Genoa stuff? Like I said, I think it's an interesting story structure for season two, um, where it is a main story that is kind of tying all the episodes together. It all kind of leads back to this deposition of what went wrong with Genoa, especially because leading up to this point, it seems like they've been pursuing the story the right way and they haven't really made any missteps. So it is this kind of the turning point where you're starting to see maybe which wrong road they went down, which I don't think is a wrong choice. I I think that sometimes, you know, a lot of the criticism for the newsroom is that it's too perfect. So I thought it was a cool idea to kind of start this season and say they did something not only just wrong, but so incredibly wrong. It's having all these ramifications. And now we're kind of going through to see how that all happened. My only issue with it was, and they did kind of, you know, make light of it um, in kind of like an inside baseball way that it was a little too easy that of course Shelly happened to know someone who would pick everything back up for them and they could track down this new contact. It was just a little too easy that Shelly would be the new link in the whole thing. But I, I think it's interesting to see where it goes from here. It certainly has captivated my attention. That's probably why I keep tr- tuning in, even though I do have issues with the show. But I do think the overall storyline is definitely interesting. And I like kind of what they're doing with it so far. Well, it's interesting you bring up how it was a little bit convenient that they just happened to stumble across this lead. Because that's a, it's, that's a very Sorkin thing, how that happened. Right. To have a character just say, oh, we need something to fall out of the sky, and then it basically does. And so I'm curious, does the fact that the newsroom is supposedly set in our reality, does that kind of limit the quote-unquote Sorkinisms that he can get away with? Do the things that Sorkin tends to do as a writer that are maybe funny or cute, are they not as endearing given this context and it, it, it maybe is that why a lot of critics have so many issues with the show his, his style just doesn't really work well in reality i think so i think that's where a lot of stems from because i mean we all know sorkin is a good writer and he's certainly done you know great work in the past and this show has definitely been the one that's gotten the most criticism i think a lot of it stems from the fact that it's easy to criticize because these are real events that recently happened that people remember 
have different impressions on and whatnot. You know, a lot of the little sorkinisms do get lost in that because people are so focused on the reality surrounding it. I, I think that's interesting because as a fan of Sorkin, when that happened in this episode, I did think to myself, oh, well, that's really convenient. But at the same time, I, I was kind of willing to just go with it because that's such a Sorkin thing to do. It seems to me like a lot of the criticism of the show, or, or at least a lot of the issues that people have with it, just come from that tension between this is a show about reality versus this is a show <laughs> that's helmed by Aaron Sorkin. Andrew, what did you think of this, uh, the Genoa stuff and, and that development? It was very like low key as it relates to this episode versus what we've seen before because it was literally as simple as saying we don't know where else to go we need something to drop in our lap and it literally drops in their lap and then it's just about them trying to convince um, the Occupy Wall Street girl to to point them in the direction that they need to go I mean there were a couple of fun moments I mean every time they took other people to her to be like can we apologize for Will <laughs> it became the funniest thing in the world I loved it when Sloane just broke down and she's like what would he have said I don't care what he would have said go to hell and you're an idiot she just has this look on her face where I'm like perfect you did it right you know where the line is drawn in how to be cordial versus look honey this is reality here you thought you were dealing with nice people this guy is going to tear you apart and you didn't realize that. I'm sorry, but that's what happened. We didn't trick you. You came in with your own problems. <laughs> um, and I yeah. love that. But the thing that I actually was thinking about as it was doing the little it did with Genoa is, as you guys mentioned, we already know that this is going to go wrong for them. And I'm kind of curious, how liable is someone like Newsnight 2.0 or whatever we're calling it for something like this? Because it's obvious that what we're seeing is all of this due diligence, which all leads to a logical conclusion, which would be this thing actually happened. And that's actually what they're going to report on. And they have all of this evidence which they're building up on. Generally, whenever people in news report news, they say, based on what this guy said, that guy said, these people said, this is what happened. And we think you guys should know that. They never take responsibility for themselves saying that we are telling you flat out, this is all we know, because we were magically in the corner of the room and we saw this, that this horrendous thing occurred. How liable would the newsroom be at this point? I mean, am I being silly with this question or am I just jumping the gun for the show? I mean, it all depends on what they said exactly and what they got wrong. Marcia Gay Harden's character, uh, Halliday, she is a First Amendment lawyer. So clearly there's, there's some really major issues and some really major trouble that they've gotten themselves into in all likelihood uh, they could be sued for libel based on something that they said. My question is this, would Newsnight be sued for libel or would it be those individuals? Oh, that's a good question. I am not sure. Because Newsnight is only reporting what other individuals are telling them. And as they confirm to the second, to the third, to the fourth source, is it just then a conspiracy of four or five people telling them madness? To Twitter telling them madness? To to, oh, to, no, no, to, no. to, to a, a report that got all of these issues taken care of with the NGO being sued as opposed to Newsnight themselves who literally just found all of these elements and put the pieces together to say this is what happened? 
No, no, no. Uh, Newsnight is definitely at fault here. I I thought you were asking whether Newsnight or ACN the company would be to blame or whether individuals like Will McAvoy would be sued. It would be ACN, the corporation. They would be the uh, subject of a lawsuit because the sources did not go on the air and say anything libelous, okay? We're supposed to assume that it was Will McAvoy and the crew of Newsnight. They're the ones that actually went on the air and said this stuff. So if they got it wrong and they said something that wasn't true, that's on them because they're the ones that are saying it on the air. If I say something to you, Andrew, about a public figure that isn't true... I need a real example, Andrew. You need to actually think up some madness to say about someone and say it to me right now. <laughs> the lawsuit would be against <laughs> Newsnight and ACN, and I don't want to know what kind of thing I might say to you. It would be something really crazy. Um, but it, does that make sense? I'm pretty sure that's how it is handled. Guys, I'm silly. I enjoy stupid jokes. Allison, am I wrong about that? No, 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 I don't think you're wrong. Um, I mean, I, I fully admit I am not a lawyer and I, you know, I think I've watched this show a lot of times because I'm like, oh, I didn't know that that's how any of that worked. Um, they are calling in very specific people from Newsnight um, into the deposition to get their testimonies, whatever they call them. But I think it is, you know, Newsnight is the one that's going to be sued. I'm, you know, I guess ACN technically is the one who's liable, but I I don't know how the chain works, but I don't think the individual people would be, you know, held accountable. I think it's the entire organization. Yeah. Legally speaking, the individuals are employed by ACN and they are working on behalf of ACN. So they are legally protected by the company to a certain extent. Will McAvoy cannot individually be sued for millions of dollars, but the corporation can be sued for millions of dollars. Right. So, so yeah, that that's who the lawsuit would be leveled against. Makes sense, I guess. Andrew's like, I don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if individuals could be sued for something like that, that would just be there. That, there would be chaos. But I mean, what what I'm thinking about is things like if they were to come on and be like, we found a report which said this. Like, the report is existent, so the question is only whether the report in itself is relevant to the conversation. Anyways, this is just me hypothesizing things that we haven't seen yet (laughs) in the show, and I'm just just going crazy, because these these are things which I think too hard about. It's up to the reporters and for the staff of ACN to vet those sources and to make sure the information is correct before they broadcast it to millions of people. It's their responsibility. So legally speaking, at the end of the day, saying, well, such and such said it doesn't necessarily mean it's therefore okay for them to say that on the air, unless they credit that source, as you mentioned. You know, if they said, if Will McAvoy went on the air and said, Kim Kardashian just tweeted that there was sarin gas used in the Middle East, and that was true, then there's nothing libelous about that. I hope all that sweet Film Geek Radio money is going to be rolling in because you got a lawsuit coming your way, sir. (laughs) Disclaimer, Kim Kardashian, as far as I'm aware, did not tweet anything about sarin gas being used in the Middle East. It's already out the bag. It's already out there. (laughs) 
but yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that they're exploring that territory. And hopefully over the next few episodes, Andrew, a, a lot of those questions will be clarified. And we'll learn exactly what was said, how it was said, legally speaking, how that could be interpreted. And, and you, you, you won't have quite as many questions about it. But yeah, overall, I think that this is probably the point where things start to to go awry <laughs> for them. Because Maggie had a traumatic experience in Africa, and now they're just basing their investigation off of a random guy in the park and his report. So that could be a little iffy <laughs> regarding accuracy. Is there anything else either of you want to say about Operation Genoa before we move on to our final main topic Sloan just saw Titanic, guys. <laughs> Sad. I have to say, I love a lot of the comic beats this season. I think Aaron Sorkin is knocking the comedy out of the park. And especially in the last episode and now this episode, I think he's doing a very good job of balancing some of the darker, heavier material with these light moments. Last episode, there was everything involving Sloane with her producer that was pretty funny. And this episode, we've got this pretty major subplot about getting an apology for Shelley that's that's very funny. So I like how Sorkin is dedicating a large chunk of the show to just kind of be light and fun. Yeah. Because some of this Africa stuff could be kind of a downer. So, so to you guys who aren't actually watching the news, go read up on Serial, because lots of things happening there that all you guys thinking the stuff they're talking about in this show is a downer, go check out some real downing state. It's not fun. Yes, real life is depressing, and it's nice that Sloan can remind us that there are people out there who may just be watching Titanic for the first time. <laughs> all right, well, let's move on to our final topic, Africa, because... This is a major plot point that's been hinted at for the entire season so far. We finally get to see what happened to Maggie over in Africa. And it's also a plot point that, from what little I've read online about this episode, people seem to really kind of be upset about it. And it's caused quite a bit of controversy. So, Allison, let me start with you. Since at the beginning of the episode, you said you you weren't really a big fan of this Africa stuff. What didn't work for you? Well, I was a fan of the idea of it. You know, I just wasn't a fan of what actually happened out there. I mean, maybe I was naive going into the season thinking that Maggie actually spent a lot more time in Africa and something else happened. They were barely there a day, and I I totally understand that what happened would be traumatic and, you know, all of that, but it just felt very heavy-handed and... I don't know. It was hard for me to kind of buy that this was really the straw that broke the camel's back for her. I thought it was well done in the sense that, you know, it got them out of the newsroom. They weren't on the campaign trail. It was kind of mixing things up. We saw Maggie paired up with another one of the newsroom reporters. And, you know, it's it's obvious that Maggie is very naive and green and kind of, you know, just starting to get her feet wet. And I did respect the fact that she was saying before she went to Africa that she really wanted to go because she wanted something that was hers. She wanted to have a real voice in the newsroom and not just be someone who's fact-checking things. But... I don't know what happened in Africa. I think I was expecting something more and was disappointed. Do you agree with that, Andrew? I agree to an extent. 
Um, there are certain elements of it which was heavy-handed and it definitely um, it can come off that way. But before I go any further, can we all talk about the fact that the guy's name is Gary Cooper? Did we did we <laughs> did we know his name was Gary Cooper? I remember Gary. I don't remember hearing it was Cooper. I think we just knew his name was Gary, not Gary Cooper. No, no, no. No, they made that joke in season one, okay. pretty early on. Okay. Yeah, okay. we knew his name was Gary Cooper. I like how they're reminding us of it again <laughs> this episode. <laughs> Can I take every every um, staff member's first name and just think of a cowboy to fit them up with the last name? <laughs> I want to. Yeah. <laughs> I need to start thinking of one for Maggie. But yeah... I actually was a big fan of the the Africa storyline, and it's not necessarily because of the content of it, because generally the content of it was pretty tame. It wasn't anything that really bothered me. As I mentioned earlier, go look up real news about Africa, guys, because you'll find <laughs> out some real depressing shit, right? I know. That's why I was like, that's what happened? Because, yeah, if we play one-upmanship, we're, there's no competition. And it's something that I've <laughs> always seen about especially in relation to, to news stories with people, especially when I talk to a lot of my friends who are a lot more well-read than I am when it comes to the news, where I'll come in and I'll be like, guys, I heard about this ridiculous story about a guy who fell under a train and survived. He's like, go look up some real depressing shit that's happening out here. <laughs> oh, and, and it just becomes a case of, of no longer talking about the story that's actually happening, but talking about it in, in the context of the whole world, which is definitely a conversation worth, ha- worth having. But at the same time, it's also worth having the one that we're actually talking about, which in this case would be the story of Maggie and her experience in Africa. All of these little things just kind of pulled me in, and I think it mainly was the fact that it felt for the first time in the whole show that I was actually watching a made narrative where I was able to to not always be latching on to be looking for where the, the next story is coming from that I would know whether it would be Occupy Wall Street or um, the oil spill that we got in the first episode where it always felt like it was just giving you hints to things you already knew to kind of ground you in a reality where in this moment we were taken out of the reality just to get this this tiny story of how Maggie's viewpoint on the world might have changed whether it be as simple as saying that her hair is something which could cause global destruction or whether it's or whether it's something like sitting down and reading a book to this one child t- 20 times and what that ends up meaning to her at the end of the day because I'm pretty sure that if we were to meet this Maggie person in the real world if she was a real person if we, if we met her at age 80 she would be able to recite that story to me and something like that kind of latches on and I like that I like the fact that as we kind of came to the end of this this story that we were talking about I actually got excited to see what was going to be happening happening next which is something Something that of everyone talking or writing or criticizing the newsroom has been saying the complete opposite for every five seconds of this show. And I don't know anyone out there who would say something different for what they did in this episode. Andrew, I, I, I agree with you in a certain way. You're, you're right that when the show is focused on the news stories, most of the time we already know what the outcome of those is going to be. So it's nice to be drawn into... A fictional story where we don't exactly know what what the details are and how things are going to turn out. 
So in that respect, I think the Maggie storyline could be pretty involving. And and honestly, it just goes to show you that, that characters are what Sorkin needs to be focusing on because the character stories are what is ultimately going to keep us watching it and, and draw us in just because we don't know the outcome. I like this Maggie storyline in theory. You know, if you're just tell me Maggie went to Africa and a child that she was carrying was shot while she was holding him and he died and it's it's basically by sheer luck that she survived. In theory, I'm thinking, okay, that's a good idea. You can you can run with that. You can do some interesting things with that. The problem is the execution of it in this episode I thought was really, really off. As you mentioned, Allison, it did just feel a little bit too heavy-handed at times. And the big climactic moment, I just really did not like how it was edited and how it was presented. And it was a little bit confusing, actually, the way they shot it, because I was kind of like, wait, 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 did the kid get shot? Wait, now here's Maggie reading to him again. Is this her fantasy? Because now the kid's apparently actually dead. It was just a little bit too chaotic, and it felt kind of disjointed. Um, and, and also the fact that it keeps cutting back to the, the, the briefing room where is recounting the story of everything that happened. I kind of wished that they would stop that and just show us what happened. You know, let us see it. You don't need to have the voiceover going at the same time. Just show us what happened and let us live in that moment and let us feel how traumatic it, it, it was. But you have to abudiate everything, Andrew. <laughs> Am I the only one who for the first five seconds was whipping out his phone trying to look up the word? <laughs> um, but I, I get you, Andrew, and I think that was probably one of the, the biggest criticisms that I would have had about that whole segment when it came to that end point where we were trying to figure out what happened. You know, did Gary Cooper get shot because he's a cowboy? Who else got shot? What was happening? Did everyone get away? And it kind of flips into this fantasy to reality point where where she's telling this monologue of what she's doing, of what happened, and you see the child alive, you see the child dead, and you're trying to figure out, like, did she want to say the child was alive just to numb the story itself so that Marsha Gay Harden wouldn't be worried that she was going to go crazy, why she wasn't taking her meds that she was being told to take? Or does she tell the reality and come to terms with that? And that might be something that... I'm looking into more than the show actually gave us, but I feel like it's there, and maybe the execution could have been better. I mean, I find it very odd that the episode ends literally with Marsha Gay Harden coming to the realization that Maggie's going to be a problem for her, I don't know why, where she just goes, fuck me, or whatever she says, you know, fuck this, or whatever. Because it's weirdly enough, I'm trying to figure out why Marsha Gay Harden needs to interview Maggie. Because I'm guessing it has to tie back into Genoa. Because if this literally is about her having to deal with the the mental issues that she co- comes from going to Africa, what does 
the company have to deal with it? She gets a care package and goes home because she can't work anymore. I, I don't understand. But this is me, once again, going into legal questions, and I shouldn't do that. <laughs> I think what they're kind of building to, and Maggie's very defensive when she goes into this interview, and Marsha Gaynon is very adamant about talking to her about Africa, and she doesn't want to talk about Africa. She's coming from the point of view of that doesn't matter. That's not why we're here. And Marsha Gaynon is trying to explain not always in the nicest way possible, but she's kind of like, you look like a train wreck and everyone believes you're unstable. And I'm getting the impression that Maggie was integral in getting something wrong with Genoa. And Marsha Gay Harden is worried that when they go into the courtroom, Maggie's going to be put on the stand and going to say, you know, you're unstable. You went to Africa. This happened to you. And because of all of that, then this happened and trying to build a case that way. And Maggie's kind of coming from this naive perspective of that has nothing to do with this. We're not going to talk about it. And that just, you know, that won't work, especially if she's changed her appearance so dramatically. And even her trying to stone face recount the story, it's very obvious that she was affected by this. And maybe it did somehow tie into what then happened with Genoa. So that's where I'm interested to see how those two kind of plot lines do connect eventually. Right. And Andrew, I I think you're right that the execution of this Africa stuff aside, the place that Maggie is in now as a result is the most interesting thing about it. And how that connects to the Genoa stuff is really interesting. And it took me a while to piece it together. And I had to talk to my girlfriend after the episode to sort out in my head just exactly what the situation is. So, Allison, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but here, here's what, what I understand. At some point, somebody said the words, it happened, presumably in regards to Operation Genoa. And that apparently is the controversial statement that has caused a lot of trouble and Marsha Gay Harden's job is to find out, was that actually said? And if so, in what context? And they call in Maggie to get her take, was this said? And her state of mind is important because it, it determines whether or not she is a credible witness. It doesn't matter what she says if ultimately she can't really be trusted. And the fact that she's now apparently, she, she was prescribed medication that she hasn't been taking, that could be very, very damaging yeah. to her testimony. That automatically makes her an unreliable witness. Uh, so that's why Marcia Gay Harden ends the episode by saying fuck because that's a big problem. So did, did I get that right? That was the impression I got from the whole thing. And I, I don't know. I mean, I was I was very sucked into it because, I don't know, I, I kind of like the conflict of Maggie being very adamant about this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter, and then almost accidentally revealing how bad a situation she is in, you know, and saying, I don't need to take those drugs, and Marsha Gay Harden being like, wait a second. This is the they prescribed you something very serious and you're just deciding not to take it. And Maggie is just very adamant about like, I know best. I think she's slowly realizing like this girl doesn't even remotely have it together as much as she thinks she does. And I might be uncovering a lot more than I thought I was going to. This might be a bigger mess than I realized. Allison, to kind of turn this discussion a little bit towards the depiction of women on the show, which is what we talked about last time you were on. I think it's interesting that this episode, I kind of have 
the exact opposite criticism of the Maggie storyline that I usually have. There have been plenty of times where I've said, I don't really like what they're doing with Maggie, but they're doing it fairly well, which is why I'm upset some of the time because I don't like what they're doing and and they really kind of are hammering it in. Um, In this episode, I like what they're doing with Maggie, ultimately. I like the character position that she's now in, but the execution of how she got there, I thought was extremely lacking. Exactly what I thought. Yeah, it it was just way, way too melodramatic. I mean, you've got this slow motion shot of Gary Cooper tripping and dropping the camera. And I was like, wait, what's happening? Why is this important? And then later you hear the gunshot. And then it's only a few seconds after that, that you fully piece together what happened. It was just really, really clunky. And it, it seemed like Aaron Sorkin, you know, one of his biggest problems as a showrunner is he tends to be a little bit too sentimental at times. He tends to really be manipulative when it comes to to playing with the audience's emotions. You know, a, a, one of the big criticisms last season was when he pulled out that Coldplay song during one of the, the, the more dramatic moments just to hammer it in. You need to feel something right now. And in this this episode with the slow motion and, and everything, it was just it was just screaming, notice me, feel something. And it, it, it really didn't work for me. It just wasn't necessary. I'm curious, Andrew. Would it have worked better for you if we had just stayed in the deposition room and it was just Sorkin wonderful point-by-point dialogue? Possibly. I think, again, I think the fact that he keeps cutting back and forth is a problem. Honestly, though, you guys can tell me what you think of this. I think it needed to be a little bit more graphic. And, And I believe we talked some in season one about how for an HBO show, really this isn't a very quote-unquote adult program. Beyond the curse words, this really isn't anything that couldn't be shown on network television. And so theoretically, they could actually show that kid getting shot. They could show some blood or that they could be a little bit more graphic with it. I, I mean, I'm not saying I need to see that stuff, but in this is a, this is a case where I think it would have helped just to kind of viscerally communicate what a traumatic experience it was for Maggie. But overall, it was a very, very tame presentation of this shooting of a child, I thought. I agree. I mean, like you said, we didn't even know if it had happened for a moment the way it was edited. So if Sorkin really wanted to drive home and should have driven home how traumatic this was for her, there was no need to cut to an idealized memory of her still reading to the little boy. I mean, it obviously would have hit much more close to home if she were the one to discover he had been shot, her hands were covered in blood, you know, and it was focused on that moment of her realizing what had actually happened instead of having these weird, you know, cuts with her voiceover in the deposition. There was too much going on. It became too jumbled. And it was such an important moment that I was like, wait, let's just focus what, what's actually happening because this is important. Yeah, sometimes all you need to do to communicate the gravity of a situation is just show us that situation simply, but in all of its detail. You don't need any voiceovers. You don't need any fancy cutting or misdirection. Just show us what happened, and if you present it well, then we will feel it. The last thing I want to talk about, though, regarding this Africa stuff is the question of race, because I'll admit I have not read up 
a lot about what other critics have said about this episode, but from what little I've seen, people seem a little bit upset about how the show depicted Africa and some of the issues facing Africa and how it touches on some really, really big issues, but ultimately they're only explored insofar as they relate to the personal journey of this one American girl. And that kind of has a lot of people bothered, from what I can tell. Did, did, did that stick out to you at all, Allison? It did. I mean, my entire issue with Africa is, yes, we saw Maggie obviously bonding with this specific child and reading to him um, over and over again. But it didn't really explain to me, you know, what their goal was being there. Um, what they were attempting to do, seeing her really interacting with the the broader scope of what was going on. Um, it just it was a bit too small. I mean, even the climactic moment felt too small. The overall, you know, explanation of what they were doing there felt too small, especially when, you know, I, too, haven't read up a ton on what other people said about it. But I, I don't know. I felt like they needed to, like, you know, pan back a little bit and see more of what was going on. It was just, I mean, I understand it was Maggie's story and it was a big, you know, moment for her, but it just felt a little too random that she flew all the way to Africa and all we saw her do is read to a child. I mean, you know, I don't know. I thought there would be more going on than just that. Andrew, I want to read this quote from Chadwick Matlin's review. Uh, we had him as a guest on the show last season and he, he wrote uh, his review for Vulture and he kind of refers to the Rick Perry incident that you referred to earlier. Um, and he writes... Quote, last night's episode turned Gary into a punchline, Kendra into a token, a racial slur into fodder. It was the kind of episode that a supposed race warrior like Don would have found execrable. Andrew, what did you think of how they handled the racial undertones of this episode? Is that an overreaction? Can I can I refuse to answer? Because this is I I, I know it's a touchy subject for Americans. And I don't have that perspective. I have the perspective of I see what you guys deal with there and I leave it alone because it's not my place to do it. Just like when during the Super Bowl, there was this wonderful ad of VW ad where they had a, a, a Jamaican in an office and they were talking about how ja how Jamaicans are laid back and, and they had do the whole Ironman thing and... Um, and it, happy to come to work five minutes later and all these things and people just kind of went ablaze over the internet oh this is so racist it's so horrible and i just couldn't comprehend how america enjoyed placing their own racial understandings on a completely other culture i don't really want to get into doing that in the opposite direction because i'm not sure not just how you guys will respond but how the rest of the world <laughs> will respond if i actually give you guys an honest response to that question. That's fair. So, Allison, I, I will talk about this with you. I can intellectually understand where this criticism is coming from. Yes, Gary Cooper really isn't a character. He's kind of just a comedic punchline. Yes, Kendra really is kind of a token black cast member, and they even reference that and kind of poke fun of that in this episode. That doesn't make it any better. So I can intellectually understand how an argument could be made that this show is a little bit racially insensitive, if not outright offensive. But all I can say is that, like some of the criticisms I've read about the show's depiction of women, while I might recognize that while I'm watching it, it hasn't bothered me enough 
to really make me angry. And maybe that's just my own privilege. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I'm curious for, for your take. I mean, are people blowing this race thing out of proportion or are there some legitimate critiques to be had? I think there are certainly some legitimate critiques to be had, but I think at least the way I viewed the entire storyline is that because we went into it knowing this was kind of Maggie's story, we saw what happened to her after everything was said and done. The focus was naturally going to be on her anyway. So I don't know. I think maybe I'm ignorant in the fact that I was just so focused on what's going to happen in Africa that everything else kind of surrounding it that made that might offend other people. I wasn't really focused on in that narrative setting just because I was focused on Maggie naturally because I want to know what happened there that caused her to turn into the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, this this is Maggie's storyline. So I think perhaps you're you're right that maybe we're not really supposed to be thinking about some of these larger concerns. Maybe that would feel inappropriate to to this story that Aaron Sorkin wants to tell. The question, I think, is whether this is the story he should be telling. I'm going to read one more quote. This is from Todd uh, Vanderwerf over at the AV Club. He says, This episode makes important, serious issues in Africa into a character growth story point for a comfortable, well-off white person in the United States. Daniel is never anything more than a cute kid marked for death. And... Yes, that is true. But again, it, it just it's it's that question of given that this is the direction Sorkin wants to take the show, is that acceptable or is this just not an appropriate direction for him to be taking the show? Like I said, I was hoping that we would and this is ironic coming from me who thinks the show drags things out sometimes too long. I felt we weren't in Africa with Maggie long enough. I really would have preferred to see her they're longer kind of experiencing more of what was going on rather than this one see very horrific moment of terror. But, you know, these kids obviously were dealing with a lot of different issues that you got glimpses of. I just, it was a little too focused. I understood why it was so focused on her. Um, and I was going into it with that perspective anyway, but I, I can see why there would be criticism that, you know, they did kind of gloss over an opportunity to explore a lot more and they just simply didn't do it. So I, I get that criticism. I think maybe one of the reasons people are a little bit upset is because they did kind of refer to some of the larger issues previously in the season. I mean, Dantana basically tells Maggie Africa is where the next big war is going to take place. And and that's kind of why she goes over there in the first place to sort of explore those issues. And for a show that really at times does seem to be about retroactively looking at the news and, and rewriting how it should have been covered. There wasn't really any news. Exactly. I mean, it wouldn't make sense if it was a missionary trip. You know, she was there to do good and try to help, but I didn't understand what news was being explored. Obviously, those children weren't warned about what she was doing there. You know, Gary Cooper comes in with the camera. They all freak out. I mean, it just it felt a little bit too all over the map about the tone Sorkin was trying to drive home. And then when it did come to that final climactic moment, the editing was just so jumbled. He was trying to show an idealized version of Maggie's memory, what really happened. And then her now, you know, looking back on it, it was just all a bit too much. And it kind of muddied the waters to begin with. So... I get the criticism. I do. 
Right. I mean, the, the problem is Sorkin stages this event so that it happens before Maggie arrives at her intended destination, where, she, where they're actually going to be doing their real reporting. So they don't really get a chance to touch on any of those issues. So it does feel very isolated from everything else. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a very localized story about cattle raiders, of, of, of all things. So I can sort of understand that that criticism. It wasn't really bothering me as I watched the episode, but now that I'm thinking more about it, I can I can kind of understand where that criticism is coming from. I'm, I'm not sure I'm as offended by it as some people seem to be, but it seems like a misstep on Sorkin's part for, for how he chose to uh, tell this part of Maggie's story. Yeah, I agree. All right. Allison, do you have anything else you want to add? No, not really. I mean, I think we I think we've covered everything. I'm, I'm trying to think of a good way to wrap all this up. No, but I mean, I, I think, you know, in hindsight, I think it was one of the stronger episodes, not only of this season, but of the series. Um, I know I come at it with a little bit more of a negative viewpoint. Um, I have a lot of criticism of the show, but I think it's moving in an interesting direction. Um like Andrew was saying, I'm actually excited to see what's going to happen next episode because it's not a new story that we already know the ending to. Um, we don't really know, you know, where this Maggie time bomb is going to go next. So I think they're headed in an interesting direction. You know, there's still going to be potholes or whatnot that they hit along the way. But I'm more entertained this season than I was last season. I can say that. Well, how do you feel about the show's depiction of women this season? Has it gotten better? Um. Yes and no. I mean, I, I kind of like um, Maggie and Sloane teaming up. I thought that was some inadvertent buddy comedy. Sloane's turning out to be not in a bad way comic relief. She's not daffy like last season where people were dropping things and tripping all over themselves. She's just like witty, which is, uh, you know, refreshing and nice to see. So I think they're headed in the right direction. You know, the girls aren't constantly focused on the guys. And, you know, Sloane has great moments where she does show how smart she really is. I mean, yeah, I still have issues with it sometimes, but not as much as I did last season. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Uh, we're no longer seeing episode after episode of Mackenzie tripping or doing something really dumb. Uh, I like how they're developing Sloan and how even though at times she's the, the object of laughter, it doesn't seem really like we're laughing down at her. I like how, how he's kind of changed those jokes. And I, I think Maggie has definitely been the weakest character on the show. I'm hoping that this Africa stuff will turn her around and make her into a stronger, more compelling character. Who knows, maybe at the uh, end of this arc, she'll actually have a backbone. We'll have to wait and see. Dragon Tattoo Maggie in the deposition room is a lot more compelling to me than any Maggie we've seen prior, which makes me think that, you know, we have some really great stuff coming ahead because she, you know, even when she came in briefly, I think in the first episode, when you first see this dramatic reveal of what a different appearance she has now, she was much more concise and professional with Will. She, you know, was very stone-faced in her deposition. She wasn't as flighty and silly. So if all of that silliness that I had major issues with last season is now getting us to a point where she's done this really harsh 180, I'm kind of into think that's interesting if you know she was so one way and now she's going you know very hard ass very stone faced and you know not not at all overly emotional like she was i think that's interesting to see you know i don't think what caused it made much sense but i think it's an interesting <laughs> change in her character and i i am excited to see that she's much more dynamic 
now and I want to I want to watch more. And I, I thought I would say that about Maggie, that I want to see more Maggie, but I do. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good uh, place to, to leave things on. The last thing I'll say is that I kind of hope next episode is nothing but Charlie making goofy faces. <laughs> Against <at> Windows. <laughs> All right, that will wrap it up for this episode of Navigating the Newsroom. We would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at navigatingthenewsroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, The Nerdy Projectors, and our latest weekly podcast all about the final season of Dexter, Avenging Angels. Allison, it's been great having you back on the show. Where can people find more of your work? Uh, you can find me at filmschoolrejects.com, voice.fan.tv, and always on Twitter at Allison Loring. Andrew, where can people find you online? Um, you can always find me on Twitter at gmanreviews and all of my writing via gmanreviews.com. And just generally say hey. You never know. <laughs> You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com and moviemezzanine.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will be sure to follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I think I'm still Andrew. You are still Andrew. Sign us off. My heart will go on. (laughs) On and on and on. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!